0: I had heard the story of a city being destroyed and another and another and another. I did not know where to put myself inside my home or outside my planet or better yet in the embraces of my tiny village. There could be no solace journeying weightless from a land in the middle of a heavy moment. Wake up. I commanded the others from their rest, wake up. I have heard the story of a city being destroyed, and another, and another, and another. Don't run away. There will be no solace returning to a land at the end of a heavy moment. There is only divine weight now. There is only you. I once heard the story of a being who took apart the bridge they were born on so that danger could not cross so that no harm would come to them. Take the bricks from the house you were born in, and others, and others, and others, and others. Take a brick from the house that wished you harm. There is rhythm in service. Take apart the library and the seven o'clock suppers. Take the body you were born in, and the one you wish could have given you life. And if you are a migrant to this planet, take the journey that carried you here. Lay it in the embraces of the brave, brave soil. There is rhythm in service, there is solidarity, there is divine weight, and there is you. One day, another planet will hear the story of a tiny village that could not be destroyed, and they will hear of the moment that you overcame those who tried to do you harm. They will hear of the moment you did more than just survive. Just survive, just survive. just survive.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome to the sixth and final episode of our second season. I am Jafar Iqbal, and for the last time this series, I will guide you through a discussion about systemic racism and white privilege in the art scene in Wales. There are actually a few thank yous I want to make before we get on to today's chat. As always, we started the episode with a creative contribution, and this one was from Radha Patel, who performed her brilliant piece, Have You Heard of the City?, Rada is a Welsh writer and artist whose work intersects across colonialism, nature, religion, and the future. She's also about to start an exciting new role at Film Hub Wales, and we wish her nothing but the best. Now, I couldn't end the series without thanking two people. The first is Edith, who produced all of the music you have heard this season. Edith has become a household name for BBC Radio listeners, with her electro-soul sound and bilingual lyrics and she's been part of both the BBC Horizons and Forte Project talent schemes. Her career is massively on the rise, and we're so grateful she agreed to provide the soundtrack for this important series. Secondly, and most importantly for me personally, I want to thank my producer Jasmine. Making this podcast was a challenging experience at times, and like all the best producers, Jasmine was committed and professional and in control. Crucially though, she was understanding and kind. Something I know I definitely needed at times during this process. Thank you, Jasmine. If you're listening to this and you need a producer for your project, please reach out to her. She's brilliant. Right, now that we've got the admin out of the way, let's get on to business. Our last discussion is with Aidan Lang, who has been General Director of Welsh National Opera since 2019. Aidan also spent six years as General Director of Seattle Opera in the United States, and before then seven years as general director of New Zealand Opera. Our conversation started with Aidan discussing his first impressions of WNO when he joined. So it's time to have a listen. This is episode six, the final episode of the Critically
2: Speaking Podcast, season two. So when I arrived in Cardiff, I was very pleased to know that already WNO had begun that work. Okay, not as far back as was the Dialogues in America. But certainly, you know, an all-staff group had been formed about six months, I think, before I arrived in in July of 19. And smartly, I think, had brought in a wonderful consultant from the Stephen Lawrence Trust to help guide the conversations. And I think it was fair to say when I joined that... I think the team were struggling to find a path as to know how to recalibrate a large art form like opera, which is, you know, tends to move in rather elephantine steps. It's a big machine, but how to really cause an organization to rethink what it does as well as an entire sector of the arts industry. We agree that we've seen positive steps as we've gone forward once the team which has members from every facet of the organization every department is represented in the group i think we're running about 19 now a board member joins us as well so we have the dialogue at board level and a real commitment to take a a pause and think how do we make our art form actually speak to what are the very pressing current concerns of today and that in the past has always been a bit of an abstract but I think what's happened is that we understand that as our society is in a state of great turmoil and hopefully fingers crossed a forward direction sorry I mean to cut you off I was going to say what were those struggles that you talked about I think it's partly because people hadn't thought about thinking of opera other than, you know, delivering Verdi or Mozart or whoever. And yes, sometimes productions can and have often a WNO slanted towards making social points, but not really considering the role of an arts organization in a much wider dialogue. And I think what I'm seeing now because obviously I as general director I meet Every six weeks, we meet a group of the larger organisations, dance company, National Theatre Wales, Film Cymru. Aspects, challenges of coming together as a sector to address issues of racial and social injustice are absolutely on our agenda. And and you're speaking, I know, as part of a series to a number of my colleagues. So even the fact of the industry coming together to join forces and join dots, I think is a really positive step rather than feeling we're segmented. So...
1: That conversation that you have around the table with the other arts organisations, that's great, and that should be happening. And the fact it's happening so regularly is brilliant. But you are all white.
2: How can you all have a conversation about racial justice when you are all white? Yeah, you're right. It, it's difficult because at the moment, no one around the table is in the lived experience position. For me, the first step is actually really to open up our eyes collectively, and, and I'm talking within WNO as well, To make a really conscious effort to change the workforce, but dialogues within the workforce is very important. And we know that people move towards this at different speeds. There's no doubt about it. I hark back to Seattle purely because in the two to three years before I came here, I saw those strides. I knew the techniques we involved. And again, a large organization it took a while for an understanding of the why we were doing this to sink through. And I think that's the important first step, that actually if the organization is clear in its purpose and that clarity is understood by everyone, then at least it's a step in the first direction. And then it is about making very positive steps when opportunity arises to open up the workforce to as many different voices as possible. I mean, that's the measure. And the big problem is that it takes time within our labor agreements or our staffing agreements, it takes time for that to change. You mentioned
1: that different organizations move at different speeds in in kind of tackling these sorts of things. In your opinion,
2: what speed is WNR going at? Bear in mind, our inclusion group is talking about it's talking about race, but it's also talking about gender. It's it's talking about equality across the spectrum. I think I would say that in the year uh, I have seen improvement. I think the group were, by their own admission, were struggling and swimming to no purpose. And Now we have much more targeted objectives. The group are the ones who set desired agendas. Let's give an example. We identified that one of the leading Aspect of the company is the tone of the work it puts out. We selected as one of the recipients for a grant from the Western German Foundation, and we decided to create a fellowship in directing. We are about to recruit a director whose remit, we will give them license to create work, and I'm consciously wanting that fellow to help guide us that a production does not necessarily only need to speak the voice of Mozart or whatever, but actually by creating new work, we as a company can be visibly seen to be looking, being open to different voices, and in time, and it's the first step, the repertoire, if you like, of our work will change. Now, no credit to me because the piece was on the docket before coronavirus, but we have a huge new project which we had to move from now to September next year, called Migrations, and it's a multi-level narrative telling six stories about immigration and migration, telling it through a number of standpoints and different musical styles, and the whole piece comes together to give a snapshot, both historically and of the present, about this pressing issue which faces us. So that is on our main stage is a huge piece, not only involving our forces, we're bringing in a gospel choir from Bristol who form part of the scenes. We have a Bollywood troupe coming in for a scene about Indian doctors who've come over to the NHS in the Enoch Powell times. And the reality is not quite what was sold on the package. So this piece is a very responsible piece, which addresses this topic. And we are putting it on the main stage. Now, I'm not sure that would have happened 10 years ago, even five years ago. So I think that's a huge step in the right direction. It has inspired us in this lockdown period. So we've asked the writers that to come up with a piece provoked by the Black Lives Matter movement. We've asked all the writers to create a piece. And these are being recorded as we speak. They're going to go live in a couple of weeks. To ask the question about art in society today, right now. Another digital project we have up the sleeve, I've asked four directors, three of whom are directors of colour, to take one aria and reimagine it in whatever way they want to reflect today's society. To actually take advantage, if you like, in this hiatus to give ourselves an opportunity to create some digital pieces which will have a wider dissemination, addressing issues, which we probably would have struggled to have found time to do in a very, very busy schedule. So we've made a conscious decision to utilise this time to create work. You know, I haven't seen them yet because um, they're in the throes of being done. To kind of look at it from the other side, you're excited about the work that you do, and I got the same
1: from your statement about Black Lives Matter back in June. My concern with the statement that was put out in June was that there wasn't a lot of talk about what WNO isn't doing or an acknowledgement that there were improvements need to be made. There was a little bit at the end of the statement, but mostly it was just, this terrible thing's happened, look at the great stuff that we do. There doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement
2: that WNO also has work to do. So I guess my question is, what work do you need to do? We made a conscious decision on that statement because everyone was making the same sort of statement. Why do you think they were making the same sort of statement? Well our view let maybe think our view was that actually it's all very well making a statement, but if you don't back it up with concrete work, then a statement is just a statement and nothing's gonna shift. So we actually took the view that it's far better to say, look, looking forward, we are working and actually doing these things rather than saying what has gone on in the past because at the end of the day moving forward and creating something is the way to make change rather than parking backwards because you don't change backwards you change moving forward so it was a conscious decision not to follow the path of everybody else going that way the opera is quite interesting because way going back to the 60s because There is a fundamental arbiter of who gets to perform, and that is, can they sing the role? Singing an opera role has a skill element, and opera was far ahead of other art forms in what used to be called colorblind casting, and that was a merit-based casting approach, because if you have someone who can sing these very challenging roles, then it's vital to cast them. But of course, we've moved on from there now, and I think one of the challenges we have the colorblind approach, and I'm, this is way out of date, is applicable within putting on standard pieces. Where we're lacking in our challenge is in works where the piece is consciously addressing issues. What can cast appropriately, and thereby set an example that we have people of colour on the stages, and we begin a process of emulation, if you like. I mean, with Lewis Hamilton winning on Sunday, making such a great statement about the aspiration that actually any young person of colour can rise for to top if the vision is there. I think one of the huge challenges we have is the cost of training. We have a huge program going into schools to excite young people. We can bring them into dress wrestles. But for anybody to choose to make a path to arrive at one of the high expertise things, a senior solo being actually a member of the orchestra, which is a high skill set, there is a massive cost in training, a long path. And that is very hard to bridge. And I think we are going to see two or three decades before we really see that difference. And that means we in the industry working with the higher education institutions, schools we have, there's a gap in the middle. We can go into schools where we can't control it so much in a significant way is helping bridge that pathway from school to the profession. There are communities out there who don't even look at opera,
1: don't even consider it, because they say, as you've kind of alluded to, It's quite elitist and it's expensive to train and it's expensive to get in there. And so people from disadvantaged communities who include people of colour, communities of colour, they're not going to come to opera.
2: So is that not a failure? In terms of serving the community, again, one has to look more deeply at the work we do in the community. So we have hubs set around the country. We have obviously one home base in South Wales. We have one in North Wales, we have one in the West Midlands. Now, that will bear its fruit, not tomorrow. It will bear its fruit in times to come. And you're absolutely right. We also have to accept that opera isn't for everybody, much as I passionately believe everyone should be a, an opera lover, but I'm probably a bit odd like that. You know, opera, classical music, is not everyone's cup of tea, and we need to accept that. Where I think we struggle is, as I said, we can open the eyes to people, but helping them move through into a path, especially in those areas which had expensive training, is very difficult. We're well aware of that. But I would also say that probably three years ago, we hadn't even thought about that path. So even identifying one of the major, one well, of many, but a very major roadblock to people entering the profession in a meaningful way is an economic barrier. We don't yet know how we solve that, but that is now on our radar to tell things. And indeed, the Western German Fellowship identifies that because the focus for all of the fellows, and there are 50 of them across all performing arts genres, are all being coached how to recruit, to rethink who we speak to in recruiting and indeed even the language of recruitment in order to find a whole cohort of fellows who will come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And as you say, a lot of those are likely to be people of color in those sectors. It is a long path.
1: How do you appeal to Butetown?
2: What are you doing to bring people in? Because they are your neighbors. Yeah, it's funny you say that because actually we're looking constantly to expand our hub's work. This is an ongoing exercise which we are rolling out. And we looked at the South Wales where we do a lot. And the one area, actually, ironically, you put your finger on it, where we've said it's fine to be working with dementia choirs and in the valleys. But actually, right on our doorstep is a community who we're not making to. So, although we're not, that is absolutely a, the one aspect of our South Wales agenda. Where we've recognized, and you're right, it's it's, it's 400 yards away. Oh,
1: why hasn't that happened? Why is that? I mean, they are literally on your doorstep.
2: It's partly, you know, we work in Splot, they are on the doorstep in Bute Town, but we are working with a refugee community in Splot, which is a mile away. So it's not that we're not doing, but we can't serve everybody. We only have resources. So inevitably, a decision has to be made. But I say we have literally made that decision that it is crazy that one community who are literally our neighbors. Our community, we haven't reached uh, absolutely why do you think all the arts leaders in wales are white well i don't know I, i'm <laughs> i'm not in a position i think uh, i think it's partly that the people who go into the administration of arts organizations in a way are on the same path as identified with practitioners in a sense because you've done it because An interest or a passion has developed, and that will be through attendance. And again, it costs money to attend. So I think it's part of that same socioeconomic cycle. Everyone can look back at where the trigger point, the excitement point of making that decision comes. It's probably during school time. And undoubtedly, people like myself of a middle-class background had greater ability or financial opportunity to go and see theatre and opera.
1: Are you saying that's tied to whiteness? I mean, how
2: how would you define whiteness? White <laughs> uh, Whiteness is, well, it depends. Do you mean by a white mentality or colour of skin?
1: No, mentality, like in the
2: context of the discussion we're having. I think probably a way of looking at it is not having considered the viewpoint of communities of colour. And I'm not saying you suddenly become non-white by considering that, but assuming that the status quo rolls over, which hasn't shifted for decades and decades and decades. Do you think you're part of that? Well, of course, because my job is to ensure we stop being part of that. That's my function as the head of WNO in these times, is to stop that continually rolling wagon and divert it down a different path. If whiteness is keeping the status quo alive or perpetuating
1: it, whether consciously or subconsciously, when something as explosive as BLM happens and there's a few people saying, this is the status quo and we don't like it and we want to change it, by releasing a statement telling us about
2: your status quo isn't changing the conversation. Would you agree with that? Well, it depends. Interpretation of uh, whether it was a statement about the status quo or whether it was a statement of concrete intent to move beyond the status quo, and we believe it was the latter. Because the status quo is a position of stasis. It's just perpetuating itself. And yes, I don't think anyone would disagree that the sector as a whole has reached that point. So in order to become richer, a decision has to be made. Our statement was intended as a statement of clear, forward momentum rather than harking backwards and saying, we don't want the status quo to perpetuate, we want to move it forward. Any statement is subject to its perception, but we thought very carefully about what we want to say. And as I say, we didn't want to just join in the chorus and not indicate that we were actively looking to change the status quo. And by definition, if you're accepting you want to change it, then by definition, you're accepting the status quo is there. But that is the intent, and that is the path the company is taking. It's a long journey. It's not going to happen overnight. But if we're not intentional about that in all areas of recruitment, of making opportunity, of of spending more time looking to recruit in areas. Here's an example. You know, it's very easy within the arts when a, a vacancy comes up because there's a pressure to fill a vacancy because everyone's under the cost, it's very easy to go to the same channels to recruit in. But we now know not to do that, to give ourselves time, to make sure that we advertise in different communities, to give time and to open up the opportunity rather than quickly filling it and replicating ourselves.
1: Could you talk about that in just a bit more detail, if you don't mind?
2: Like more tangibly, like what are these different steps that you are taking? If you have a position, the, the tendency is always to go to the same old places where the same people will be looking for the jobs. So we now have a clear aim to a to give us ourselves more time, because one has to understand that we will need to make the job intriguing to people who may not have considered a who may not even known to look in a certain area where you advertise, and secondly to think not as a sort of top-down approach, like the language you use, even the way you present it visually. It's more about getting to the heart of what the task is and say, does this task interest you? To really think from the other point of view, to, to think from the potential candidate's point of view as to whether this might sound an interesting place and an inspiring place to come and work. So it's a combination of duration, first of all. You need to allow more time and where you consciously post rather than being lazy and just going to the same old places, which is what has always happened in the past. So it's no coincidence that organizations continually replicate themselves in their own life because they are subconsciously only ever looking in those places to recruit. So therefore, the first step is to make a conscious effort to open up the avenues for potential candidates to come forward. Those communities and those people in those communities who you're going to
1: target As you said yourself, a lot of those communities at the moment have no affinity with opera or don't think they do. And this isn't just about opera, it's about a lot of arts organisations across the world where people don't feel like they belong in a place or in a space. Because it's all well and good saying we're going to advertise in these communities But if they don't feel comfortable in that space, what are you doing so that when they're in that
2: space, they are comfortable? Well, again, it's not just about advertising, it's actually about talking to people. And which is why I say, you know, we can take one job recruitment, that's not going to break the pattern. Part of our real examination of our work in the hubs now, and I said we have made a conscious decision to expand this work, is... Just taking a step back, we're not now going in saying, right, we are doing this. Do you want to join us? Actually, going the other way. And talking to communities to find a common ground. Again, it's things we did in Seattle. And I think in terms of building that trust for what we do, those conversations which have been happening for a while already need to grow. And the best way really to engender that confidence is to work in partnership on a creative project because we are a creative producing company. But genuinely in partnership and not it's not a one-way thing. That means co-creating pieces, also in terms of a stigma of opera, you know, it's a question of saying that what we're doing is we tell stories through song and it's a question which stories we tell. So if we're in dialogue through our engagement work with the communities who we are working with and new ones who we've sought out. Part of that discussion is how can we create immersive and participatory work rather than it being about bringing people into the WMC. I think the first step has to be that real sense of trust of two organizations, a community and organization coming together and creating something themselves first before you jump to attending a performance of Tosca. I don't think attending a performance of Tosca today is really the purpose of the work we're doing. And for me... Part of the job within our organization is actually enabling the understanding from everyone from, you know, who are used to promoting and producing large-scale tours of free opposition repertoire continually, that the work we are doing in this arm is of equal importance to the work seen on the main stage. And in time, if people are so inclined to come and see Marriage of Figaro, great, but it isn't necessarily the purpose, I think. Now we're understanding that what opera is is a lot more than putting on Don Giovanni and Figaro. It's actually about creating pieces and getting to the heart that opera is basically, as I say, storytelling through song. When you've got someone, let's say a person of color who
1: is interested, wants to work with WNR, but they're coming into an organization where the vast majority of that organization is white, the vast majority of your chorus, your orchestra is white, your workforce is white, That can be a a very scary place. And I guess I'm asking the question because I feel like the question wasn't answered properly the first time. Is that what is in place for someone like that? What does WNL do for those communities when they feel scared or trepidatious of coming into that place because there's no one there like them? How do you accommodate those people?
2: I don't believe that there are people in our workforce who would make the experience intimidating. Uh, But I realize, of course, that those people aren't in the position that person coming in. And in time, when opportunity arises, that's why we are seizing opportunity when we can to make a more diverse workforce. But of course, it isn't going to happen overnight, but we have to take some steps and make sure that that progression, that transition happens. So yes, of course, initially, if a person of color comes in and finds a predominantly white workforce, it's going to be hard. But when the second person comes in, is going to be a notch less hard. We have to begin somewhere, and the important thing is that the organisation has in place the understanding with the existing workforce, and then makes it as welcoming as it wants to be. And we're not talking about going to some corporate monolith or some large business which sort of thrives in that. The arts are a creative and open melting pot the people who get attracted to work in the arts are going to be sympathetic to the role of art in society. So i say our job is to get our house in order internally, accept that we're on a journey and it's going to take time, but be consciously working towards changing the makeup of a workforce and the mentality within. <laughs>
1: kind of discussions did you have as an organisation? You mentioned you had the Inclusive Task Force. What kind of conversations happened in that Inclusive Task Force? Because again, a lot of you are white. So who is on that Task Force? And what kind of conversations are you having about inclusivity if a lot of those people look the
2: same? Well, the conversations are exactly about inclusivity. How can we change? The Task Force have themselves set the targets, the goals, the intentions, which the senior management team now need to effect. So rather than going top down, we charge the task force with helping set the agenda. Those members of staff who are people of color are part of that task force and are those voices listened to. And they say it's not just a racial-based thing, it's also gender-based as well. So the goals and the aims are actually, that is the purpose of the task force, to help guide the management team towards leading the company rather than going the other way around. That's crucial. So that is really their mandate. And it is a dialogue between the management team who then need to put this in place and to work out what are achievable goals rather than aspirational goals, which will never be met. And what is the rate? What is the progress rate? What is the the timeline to achieve that? What have you learned from those task force meetings? The crucial one is to change the makeup of the organization. When opportunity arises, obviously HR are part of that, and so their learning curve is crucial to that. Another important factor, I think, is how we engender in a large organization. There are 277 people who work for WNO in a either full-time or largely full-time capacity. How we instill the understanding in such a large team, which is why every team is represented in the task force. And there's a long way to go for that. I think it's purely by force of numbers. It's a neutral space. So it's the area where the voices are given license to say, hang on a minute, are we actually doing this? Is this decision right? And it means in time that even our programming comes under an element of scrutiny to make sure that repertoire choices we might have made a decade ago and just taken as read, are these pieces or is the way we're going to do these pieces correct for today's time? And for, to give an example of this, in parallel with Migrations, we're actually doing a new production of Puccini's Madame Butterfly, which is a difficult piece. And so we have consciously evolving a production which addresses the theme, if you like, of the other. Madame Butterfly is a piece about imperialism. It's actually a critique of late 19th century Western imperialism in the exploitation of Japan. Now, it's very easy for that piece to then descend into a pretty costume drama. So taking advantage of a new production, we're making sure this production addresses not only that aspect, but also the aspect today of human trafficking, of sex slavery, if you like, and ensuring that the piece actually speaks to to today and is lifted from it's normal opera trappings of a very moving but potentially offensive piece. The production is not turning that round. Now, I think that's not necessarily a decision that the company would have made 10 years ago, or even five years ago. It would have made a decision based on more aesthetic grounds. So there's an example of, alongside Migrations, which is a new piece, which is fantastic, we can do. But also the way we're now considering even standard pieces and making sure that we put work before the public, which caused them to think. How will you stop Madame Butterfly being offensive? What are you doing to ensure that? I don't want to give too much away about a new production, but uh, we've completely stripped it of all. It's not even about Japan. It actually takes the subject of the arrogant assumption of a white man for what the director is calling the other. We're not just using Asian artists, we have Jamaican artists, we have an African-American artist coming. We're consciously putting the dilemma on stage and inviting our audience to think very carefully about it, rather than hiding the material with a veneer of old-school opera trappings, if you like, fantasy trappings.
1: The reason I brought that up is because two years ago, WNO caused some offence, and you mentioned earlier about colorblind casting, and that was. What was the piece? It was The Chinese Dragons. It wasn't, it wasn't a piece of yours.
2: That was Music Theatre Wales. That wasn't WNO. And it's very important to get this. No,
1: no, it wasn't WNO. But what did happen was there was the controversy over Yellow Face. The, the show was nominated for an award. Open Linter went out from a lot of different people saying it shouldn't be done because of its tastelessness, because of the Yellow Face. And WNO responded in opposition to that letter, it was signed by David Pompany, oh. saying, we operate colourblind casting. The comment was, we shouldn't limit casting, so white people should be allowed to play black characters in the same way that black actors should be allowed to play white actors. I would say, I think a lot of people have said, and especially in the light of what's happened in the last year, is that it's the balance of power which stops that from being a legitimate thing. And I know you've said earlier that the idea of colorblind casting is outdated, but it was being before your time, yep. but two years ago. So my question to you is, what are your thoughts on
2: colorblind casting right now? It's so very simple. I wouldn't have done that. Colorblind casting was a very forward way of thinking through the 60s and 70s. And it was a way of showing that opera audiences don't worry if in a period drama, an African-American singer is playing... Count Helm Viva in a production set in the 1780s, I mean, that um, moved on. But, you know, we have moved on from there. And uh, now we are talking about being more intentional in our casting in order to, while keeping the parameters of simply the skill level required to sing the role to a certain level, we are much more intentional in our casting now and because we recognize that one way to make the company more accessible to communities of color is... Who people see on stage? There's a difference, I think, in my view, between being colorblind, which is simply at root a merit-based approach to casting, to being much more strategic, opening ourselves up to opportunities to put on stage as diverse a cast as we can. To be completely transparent,
1: the statement came out on several different platforms and then was deleted quickly
2: after. Why do you think WNL didn't acknowledge it afterwards? I wasn't there, and as I said, I think we've changed as an organisation in the 14, 15 months I've been here anyway, and, I, and I'm i not really in position to talk about what came before because I wasn't even in the UK, I was 8,000 miles away.
1: I understand that, but again, it goes back to those communities who feel like opera isn't for them, and I fully understand that you weren't there, but it's the idea that you're saying that this colourblind casting was seen as a positive in the 60s or whenever, but this was 2018. Mm-hmm. and. Whether you were there or not, it's an organization that in the last two years has an extremely, extremely outdated view of how an organization should should be cast. And I appreciate that you're saying things have changed since then, but what concerns me is not necessarily that it hasn't come from you specifically, Aidan, but that the organization didn't acknowledge that they might have made a mistake. It was just brushed under the carpet and let's move on, this didn't happen. Let's carry on being who we are. And I think WNO should take some accountability for making those comments, especially if they are of a very old time. I mean, who takes accountability in the organization for when stuff like this happens?
2: Ultimately, accountability lies with the top. But as I say, the company is different. We've moved on in terms of our management structure, the personnel, certainly personnel at the top. I certainly didn't see the WNO statement, but I did read, of course, of the situation with the... I can't remember what the piece is called. Uh, The Chinese Dragon, I think it's called. Golden Dragon, what it is. And I remember looking, thinking, well, you know, okay, that's where Seattle Opera was five years ago. We have to look forward, or always be looking forward, because that's how change happens. And taking positive action is the necessary step. Otherwise, we end up in a mood of perpetual recrimination and... Even making a management change, the company has made a statement. And I'm not here to, it's not above my own virtues, but one aspect of a reason I would have been recruited was because of the very visible change we made in Seattle Opera during that time. And it was absolutely about working with different communities. And, you know, that is the way we are moving forward. And I think it's important that we do that and that it's important we don't get sidetracked did research in all the organizations. And one thing I noticed on the WNO social media,
1: which is really active and there's constantly lots and lots of posts, which given there's a pandemic going on, is amazing. But one thing I did notice is that we've just come out Black History Month and there wasn't a single post about Black History Month. Not even just an acknowledgement of it. There were acknowledgements to World Drumming Day and other things like that. Why does one get acknowledgement and the other doesn't? And who's accountable for that?
2: This may be partly due to that lot of our team during Black History Month workshop with furlough, so I think our timing wasn't probably optimal. Again, I think we felt that we hadn't got any concrete activity, especially knowing what we've had coming up, really to, to offer anything particularly helpful to the discussion is really where we were. Could you not advertise migrations again? Could uh... It is a design not just to lead with activity rather than words, really. But it's social media. I mean, there are a lot of words on there. (laughs) Well, actually, our social media work, if you look at it, it is actually quite targeted to our output. Our social media work doesn't really act as sort of catalysts for discussion. It doesn't go far off the track of being around what we are doing. Other companies do deliberately put provocations out in order to discuss that. Now, actually, with creating change, this adjunct to migrations, that is a provocation. And it'll be interesting to see what the outcome of that is. But I think we felt that that was coming and that is our contribution. You know, in a sense, black history doesn't end in a month. its History isn't compartmentalized in 30 days. It
1: doesn't, but how do you build... Bridges of communities if you're not engaging with them. We're in a pandemic, we're locked down. You can't go out to those communities. What you do have is a digital platform where you can talk to them whenever you want. And it's not even just about the black community. Obviously, this is what our conversation is about, but the transgender community or faith or whatever. You have this place to do that. And you're saying you've made a conscious decision not to do that. And and that's what I'm trying to understand is. When you have this way of engaging communities and talking to them and then being able to access your social media and talk to you,
2: why wouldn't you... What I would say is that our most useful contribution would have been creating change were it ready. And it's ready in December. What would be useful is to come back after that and hear your views on that as a really positive contribution to that debate rather than just making a statement. And I really believe passionately that doing things and releasing thoughtful, creative content is a much more positive way of moving the dial than just making a statement. I should also say that even our work with the refugees in Splot that is being filmed. We couldn't film in the location, but we're filming that at WMC as we speak. And that's another project which will get released. So those conversations, okay, it's with the refugee community, so it's a different topic. Nonetheless, that project is ongoing, but again, it's not ready to be released yet. It was being created and we had to find a way around lockdown even to capture it. Why is it important that it needs to be ready. I I
1: know that's a weird question to ask, and I'll I'll, I'll clarify. I guess it's a question of transparency more than anything else. And I feel like of the six organizations that I've spoken to, WNO's organization has been the least transparent in terms of talking about what they're doing moving forward. So obviously, again, there's a lot of just saying we're doing this, and then not actually saying what you're doing. Whereas, especially now, in, in light of everything that's happened, people want to know what you're doing, because they want to place their trust in you. And the reason we're doing this podcast is because we want you to tell us what you're doing. Why have WNL been so guarded about talking about what they're doing? Or even just saying, because I know that in one of your, I think it's one of your financial statements, you mentioned that you are working on improving your diversity, but nothing's being said about how you're going to do that. Now, you've told me today, and that's great, but why not talk about it? If you're going to be forward-thinking, then you should talk about it. Because then the alternative is saying, we're not doing this correctly, we'll get better, which is what everyone else is doing. But you're saying, we are doing
2: good things, so why not talk more about them? The point you raised about things being ready, let me ask you, what is the better statement, something which it doesn't have to be you know, fully polished, but which is concrete and becomes a clear point of reference at which to talk? What is more compelling to actually have creating change once it's ready in a couple of weeks' time to act as the catalyst rather than just drip-feeding saying this is ongoing? Because the statement is really saying that we are ensuring that our mechanisms are in place in order that when opportunity arises, we can recalibrate the way we think of it. So it's not a very enticing statement for an arts organisation. I think it's much more meaningful if we from time to time, put projects in front of the public where they're going to be seen by more people and projects which act as a catalyst for discussion. Our approach has been to let the work be the point of discussion rather than making statements where we've got nothing really to back it up. Within the prism of, obviously, the issues of systemic racism
1: and the diversity within the workforce and the casting and everything that we've spoken about, how will WNO? how will you, in your position judge success and
2: how are you holding yourselves accountable for that? Mm, It's a very good question. It's a good question because it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what the success measures are. I think for me, the immediate success will be on the the rate at which we can build first trust and then genuine creative partnerships with the communities who we're working with. And I say we don't have resources to work with everybody, so there is an element of choice there. But once we see those partnerships coming to fruition. And a good example would be working with Oasis, the refugee center, where a creative project is now happening. This is the second one. And capturing it digitally means it's able to reach a far wider audience than the showing, which was within my first week actually of arriving, was a showing of the work done so far. It sounds like a small step, it's not a grand step, but I think it's a very important groundwork to achieve that. Achieving a diverse workforce, as long as we stay true to the intent of that and the purpose, success will come further down the track. And, well, ironically, it's much easier to address the casting than it is to change the makeup of fixed forces because they're on permanent employment contracts, whereas casting is a freelance decision making. So, a lot of that, there is issues of availability and obviously technical capabilities seeing a particular role and correct form of baritone, etc., you know, all that stuff. But that's an easier step to take, actually, than it is for the workforce as a whole, because it's dependent on availability of roles to allocate. In an ideal world, what does WNO look like in 2025? For me, an arts organization needs to be part of a debate. And the shift really is moving opera away from being perceived as a sort of high-class entertainment option, an alternative to Les Mis. I see a success is that WNO is perceived as an organization who present our art form in a way which inspires discussion and debate and is placing it in today's society rather than hiding behind historical context and with historical context comes an element of excuse, if you like. Do you think the arts and worlds has a capacity right now, let's say within five years' time, 10 years' time, to root out systemic prejudice? It has the capability to do that. It is for the sector to look at itself and understand the reasons within its own ambit the capability is certainly there absolutely. What will it take? It takes keeping at it is the short answer and not letting it slip bringing the whole organization to understand why you're on the journey. What we found in Seattle is once we'd got over that hump, actually there was huge excitement within the organization. And as your staff becomes younger, social issues become more in the discussion in the lunchroom. And as organizations, organizations evolve with their staff, there's no two ways about it. And if the culture within the team is active and thoughtful, then there can be an acceleration. And probably at the moment... The art scene in the country as a whole is a bit like starting a Grand Prix on a slippery grid. I'm a great Grand Prix fan, so I like the metaphor. On Sunday, some cars couldn't get going. Others had a good grip and got away fast. And in a sense, it's a bit like that, that some organizations are better placed at the moment to make an acceleration. Others are slipping and sliding a bit in the conditions and need a few laps to get going. But the key thing is to have a forward momentum, I think. Season two of the Critically Speaking podcast was the joint effort of many talented
1: and hardworking people, and they all deserve to be praised. So, I'd like to thank Dr. Adiola Davis, Aki Gurung, Alice Eklund, Connor Allen, Dure Shehwar, Edith, Fez Mia, Jafarin Khan, Jasmine Grace O'Kay, Mali Ann Reese, Radha Patel, Sadia Pineda Hamid, Selina Kaimau, and Shane Nichols. I'd like to thank my guest for giving us their time and of course I'd like to thank Arts Council Wells for funding the project now you can find us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram by searching for Critically Speaking and please if you liked what you heard leave us a 5 star review on Apple Podcasts but that's all for now until next time thank you Dioch, and goodbye